Well, simple question for us this morning to, to launch us off in this passage, but who here likes double standards? No one's raising their hand. Okay, even if you did raise your hand, I'd say your vote doesn't count, and that's a double standard anyway. I think this is just a basic fact, right? No one likes double standards. In fact, in fact, this is one of the first things somebody can realize is wrong. Your children don't need any training in understanding that double standards are wrong. Your spouse, your coworkers, everybody around you, if anybody's known you for two seconds, they already know that you are a double standard factory, and they don't like that. They don't like it. Why is that? Because, honestly, and you probably hear this from your kids, it's just unfair. It's just unfair. We laugh and we giggle, sure, but it's just unfair. That is it. We are applying the same rule differently between different people. We're applying the same rule differently between different people. Whether that's somebody close to us, somebody far from us, someone uh, that we have brought into this world, somebody that we have not brought into this world, whatever it might be, double standards are just unfair. I mean, the deeper aspect of this is simply that double standards say of yourself and to others, listen, I am the only one who is able to judge rightly in this situation. Given the rules that I've given you, I am only the true judge. And again, if somebody's known you for more than two seconds, everybody's like, that's not right. That's not true. That is not true. We were talking in Guardians this past Wednesday, shameless plug for Guardians, parent Bible study, fourth Wednesday of the month. We'll see you guys there in September. Uh, but we were talking in Guardians just about how the world just tries to just tries to impress its truth upon the kids, and we just we just came to this conclusion that it's just it's a double standard. And one of the one of the examples given was Steve Jobs. We all know who Steve Jobs is, right? He's the inventor, promoter, iPhone, big tech guy, right? So here he is selling the iPhone to anybody with a pulse that can fog a mirror, and yet he wouldn't let his own kids use an iPhone. Right, we giggle again, but just to think about it again critically, here's Steve Jobs saying, listen, I have the iPhone, and I know its capabilities, and I am judging that everybody, other than my family, can use it and should use it and should pay me to use it. But as far as my family goes, we will not be using it. In that moment, Steve Jobs is saying that I am the only one who can judge this situation, judge the use of this technology, the appropriateness of this technology, rightly. Rightly. Now, again, we've already confessed, we don't like double standards. But here, in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord, Jesus, is going to convict us of two things. First, we all live out double standards. We do. And the second is that living out double standards is not... It is not helpful for the church. The church has no need for many judges. The church has no need for God substituting many judges. Instead, what the church needs, and this is where God is going to bring us, we need to see sin and mercy clearly. We need to see it according to God's standard, not our own. So look here at verse or at chapter 7, verse 1. I, Jesus gets right to it. He says, do not judge. This is a command. You are not to judge. Now, Jesus here isn't saying don't judge 
That's confusing. I should use different words. He's not saying don't judge. We'll get into it a little bit later. The, the real, the, the meaning behind the word here of judge is this legal condemnation. Because you've broken these rules, you now stand guilty, right? Because you've broken these rules, you now stand guilty. Jesus here isn't saying so much, do not judge. Again, we'll get into that a little bit later, what the positive end of that looks like. But what he's saying is do not condemn. Do not condemn. Do not hold people up to a set of standards and prove them to be guilty. Why? Why should we not do that? Look at the rest of verse 7 here. So that you won't be judged. Now, again, Jesus is, is helping our minds think about this because we know that we ought to judge. We know that Christians ought to judge. And again, we'll get into that here in a second. But we also know that every one of us will stand before the Lord as, uh, as or getting judged. Right? Each and every one will stand before the Lord, ready, prepared to be judged. Jesus here, again, is prohibiting believers from condemning each other, but he's saying this. He's saying you should not condemn each other because the standard, I should say, because God's standard is true, you will be judged according to that. Look at verse 2. It says it. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. He's saying here, the judgments you use against somebody else, that will be the judgment you will be judged by. He repeats it in a different way. The measure that you use, or I'm sorry, you will be measured by the same measure you use. Again, not to get too nerdy, but the Greek here is the measure that you measure by will be the measure that you are measured by. He repeats it over and over again. The truth is, we, as believers, do not condemn other believers because that is rooted in our pride. It's rooted in our pride. God will hold us accountable to the standard that we use to condemn others. It's rooted in pride because pride here coaxes us. It tempts us. It lures us in to look at others, not as God would look at others, but as we want to look at others. And there's an element here of this condemnation, this guilt according to my standard, not God's standard, that has, at least in part, this, this idea, this belief in our hearts that I deserve. I deserve something greater than this person. Maybe the opposite side of the coin. This person deserves less than I deserve because fill in the blank. Pride coaxes us to look at others, not as God does, but as we want to, trying to get a leg up on the rest of the people around us. So according to God's righteous standard, then, our pride deserves condemnation. It's sinful to hold people accountable to our standard and not God's. I'm so thankful for Jesse saying that we, we sometimes in our pride look to replace God as judge. And that's exactly what Jesus is coming against here. He's saying in our pride, we know God's standard. We know that he is the judge. And yet for a brief moment, we just think to ourselves, we believe in our own hearts. Listen, God, I know what you have planned. I know the standard you set. But just in this moment, I think I've got it just a little bit better figured out than you do. I think it's just this one particular moment, just this one time in my entire life, my standard is just exceedingly better than yours. And so I'm just going to operate out of my own rules. I'm going to operate out of my own standard. I'm going to measure with the measure that I measure by. And I'm going to judge with the judgments that I judge by. 
but that is replacing God as judge. That's pridefully putting ourselves in God's spot. That is giving in to that temptation of pride to look at people differently than God himself does, the righteous judge. So the first question we, we ought to think about is simply this. Are our relationships marked by pride? Are relationships marked by pride? Now, I have a list here. We love lists, of course. I have a list here of ways that our relationships can be marked by pride. So, are your relationships marked by a judgmental attitude? Do you spend time condemning others? How about a critical spirit? Fault finding. First idea out of our minds when we meet somebody new or look at somebody we've known for a long time is, man, that guy is just full of faults. How did he go like that? How about discriminatory? Do we censor our relationships? This person is even worth my time. Harsh accusations. Coarse joking. An unwillingness to forgive. How about gossip? And then, of course, we already talked about it, but double standards. In each of these ways, there's an element of pride that leads us to think we deserve more, we are better than those around us. So again, our question for this morning is, are your relationships marked by pride? Now, truth be told, and we can thank God for this, the gospel points this out, is that we all struggle with pride. There's not one of us in this room that doesn't struggle with pride. And because we all struggle with pride, every day we struggle with prideful judgment in our relationships. So it's not a question of if I ever struggle with any of these things, a judgmental attitude, condemning, discriminatory, sense of relationships, unwillingness to forgive, keep on going. It's when. It's when I struggle with these things. Since pride has pierced us through and our sin is evidenced in our relationships, we all have to admit that we struggle with pride and prideful judgment of others. Man, but this is where the gospel truth just rings so brilliantly. Because even in the face of our pride, you know what Jesus did? In his great righteous judgment, he took our condemnation. He went to the cross and took our sin so that we would be free from our own pride. To think in just even our relational moments where we say, you know, here and now my standard is better, my measure is better, and so I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to judge sinfully. To think just how much pride works itself out in just every other aspect of life. To think that Jesus would go to the cross for you and for me to die, to take the consequence, the condemnation that we rightly deserve onto himself to set us free from that pride. It revolutionizes the way that we see not just other people, but ourselves. So if today you've admitted, and I've actually admitted for you that you're a prideful person that shows up in your relationship, sorry. But if you admitted to that, then the solution is actually simple. It's to trust the Lord for his for his right judgment of us based on his son. If you know today that you stand condemned before the Lord, that really you have gone through your Rolodex of options to escape judgment of the Lord, and you have come up with no viable options, then your only option, and this is true whether you find a different one or not, your only option is for Jesus Christ to take your sin away as he did on the cross and to trust him 
completely for forgiveness. But that should also mean that Jesus frees us from our pride and restores us to himself, a sinner now redeemed. But that should also mean that pride has no room in our relationships with other believers. If Jesus set us free, then why are we bringing it back, in a sense? Believers should not reapply condemnation to other believers. We should definitely reapply sunscreen now that it's getting hotter out, but we should not reapply condemnation to other believers. Are we doing that? Are we doing that? Are we going back around to pre-gospel realities to look at others around us and say, I know God's forgiven you, but I just haven't. And there is this thing that I'm holding you to that God's forgiven you of that honestly, it's just too much for me to look past. Believers should not reapply condemnation to other believers. That is not the way God's gospel kingdom operates. So what should we do instead? Well, Jesus helps us out here in verses 3 and 4 with this absolutely ridiculous picture. Look at verse 3. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but not notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your own eye and look, there is, insert the word gigantic, beam of wood in your eye. Now, we know Jesus was at least somewhat proficient in carpentry, and we also know that he had brothers. So I'm just thinking, like, history-wise, he definitely had uh, experience with sawdust in his eye and experience with brothers pushing his buttons. So I am sure that this is coming right out of Jesus's life as a child. But he uses it here to describe what is really going on when we seek prideful judgments against others. And so the first thing we need to see here is that if we turn, we turn from our pride. Look how destructive this pride is in this person's life. This man with a huge sin problem is trying to help somebody with a relatively small sin problem. I I hope you guys can just see the ridiculousness of this picture. Here's a guy walking around with a telephone pole hanging out of the front of his face. And he thinks it's wise and good and right to just swing that puppy around trying to help other people remove just a little shard, a little piece of wood from their eye. Again, we laugh and we giggle, but seriously, look at verse 3 again. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but not notice the beam of wood in your own eye? This man is seeking out sin in others. And pridefully, what he's saying is, hey, listen, splinter guy, your sin is far worse than mine. And then in verse 4, it gets even deeper than that. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your own eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Now, instead of seeking out sin in other people's lives, now this guy is saying, oh, now that I found it, now that I've located your problem, as he has this gigantic telephone pole hanging out of his face, right? Let me just real quick help you. Let me help you. And he's not just saying your sin is worse than mine. He's saying, actually, my way of handling that sin is better than yours. So here we see pride on both sides. Here this guy doesn't think that his sin is all that bad. And then as he has this massive sin problem, obvious to the rest of humankind, he's saying, actually, my way of handling sin is better than yours. Verse 5 sums up what this man is. Look at that. Verse 5, hypocrite. 
hypocrite. There's an exclamation point after. I'm not going to yell it out, but hypocrite. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. He holds a double standard. He has judged that his sin is nowhere near as bad as this other guy's sin. But more than that, he is a self-righteous pretender. He's a self-righteous pretender. He's a two-faced accuser. He is a hypocrite. I think one of the reasons why we don't like double standards so much is because we don't like the hypocrisy of it. Here's a person who doesn't even practice what he preaches. Here's an angry father that blasts his children for fighting. Here's a lazy employee that rips his boss for not doing enough for the company. Here's a dismissive teen gossiping to his friends about how their parents don't really care for him enough. Here's a jealous friend that laughs and then gossips about his best friend with his new big purchase. Here's the evidence of hypocrisy and the pride that leads us there. And again, we all struggle this because we all struggle with pride. But as this guy swings around this telephone pole maiming any, any poor person in his way, we have to say that this pride leads to relational ruin. This guy is going to do more damage than good. This Christian who pridefully sees his sin as less than a brother or sister's sin and sees his ways of handling sin as better than their way of handling sin, what they're going to do is they're going to do more spiritual and more relational ruin than good. And the reason is, is because this person is blind. Look at the rest of verse 5. First take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly. See clearly. And this is where we get back to the gospel. Because in our pride, we don't see sin clearly. In our pride, we don't see God's way clearly. But when we do focus on the gospel, when we do see God's work on our behalf through Christ, we start seeing sin and the effectiveness of the gospel clearly. It changes us. It reroutes us. It takes us away from this prideful avenue looking down on others, assuming that we've got it all figured out, and turns us to two things, humility and mercy. Pride leads to this spiritual and relational ruin because it blinds, but humility leads to restoration because it offers mercy. Look at, the, look at verse 5 again with me. He gets to this hypocrite thing. You hypocrite. There you have these double standards. You need to practice what you preach. You need to take that beam of wood out of your eye before you can help anybody else. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, first, take the beam of wood out of your eye. Please, please take it out of your eye. And then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So again, Jesus here isn't saying do not judge, right? We need that level of ministry in our relationships. We need believers around us to help us out, to see our blind spots for us, and not to engage with them pridefully, but to engage with them with humility and mercy, to engage with them in the truth of the gospel. The second step here, if we're the first step, sorry, is to abandon hypocrisy and relational ruin. The second step here for helping others fight sin is to consider your own heart first, right? Consider your own heart first. In the famous proverb of Ice Cube, he says, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here as a church. That's exactly what we're trying to do here as a church, we are not trying to ruin our lives and other people's lives by abandoning the truth of the gospel. 
we are trying to offer humility and grace so that there would be not just relational restoration, but if somebody is errant, if somebody is off the path of righteousness, to restore them, to restore them back to faithfulness. So what are some ways that we can consider our own heart first, other than considering our own heart first? All right, three things. All right, first is your goal. Your goal. We all get sweaty palms when we witness somebody doing something that we don't think they should be doing, and then that gut feeling sinks to the bottom of our gut, and we say, well, I should say something. I should say something. In those moments, one of the first questions we can ask ourselves is, what is my goal? Am I going into this conversation with the aim of condemnation or restoration? Am I going into this relationship this new level, potentially, of a relationship. This where I'm going to be cashing in my social equity, my relational equity with this person in order to help them with the splinter in their eye. Am I going in here for condemnation or am I going in here for restoration? Get the image here of uh, either a prosecutor or a doctor. We just think about how those rooms are usually set up, right? A prosecutor is standing opposed to the defendant. And he is listing out all the reasons why the defendant should be condemned, should be proven guilty. Are we more like that or are we more like the doctor who gets the x-ray, gets the test, and sits down next to the patient, gets down next to the person who's hurting, and says, let's look at this together. Let's look at this together. Is your goal condemnation or restoration? Are you more of a prosecutor in these moments, more of a doctor? We check our goals, of course, because ultimately with our desires, this is where our heart rests. Probably the quickest way we're going to figure out if we are operating out of pride or humility and mercy is simply just saying, what do I want out of this? Am I being faithful to God's command to judge yet to restore? Or am I being faithful to how great I think I am and I'm just using this person as a pedestal to uh, exalt myself? So first things first, we consider our goals. But then after that, we consider our faithfulness. We consider our faithfulness. I mean, this guy has an obviously massive problem with sin, and yet he has absolutely convinced himself that it's actually no big deal. No big deal. In our faithfulness, we need to understand, and we need to consider have we repented of all the sin that the Spirit is laying on us before we step into the God-given role of confronting brothers and sisters in the sin that we see going on, one of the first things we need to do is think to ourselves, have I repented of all, this, all the sin that the Spirit is currently convicting me of? I don't think we can be effective confronters if we have not responded faithfully to the Spirit's confrontation in our own hearts. I don't think that's a possibility because... It's faithfulness. We can't expect to faithfully serve God's ministry of helping other believers look at sin problems or respond to the gospel with trust if we have not done it ourselves. You need to check your faithfulness, your repentance, or are you giving in to an unrepentant lifestyle? Are there sins that you are convicted of by the Holy Spirit or maybe even a brother or sister that knows you well? And you are just ignoring it. You are giving up on it. You are not responding faithfully to the conviction thereof. So we look at our goal. 
We look at our faithfulness, right? We ask the hard question, is this actually a log in my own eye or is it actually a speck in my brother's eye? But then we consider God's wisdom. We have to go back to God's standard. We can't operate out of our own standard. We go back to the way that God has set things up. We go back to the way that God measures us. We go back to the way that God's standard is described for us. We go back to God's wisdom. We don't want to step into a situation where we think we've seen sin in a brother or sister's life and then get there and say, I think or I believe. We want to go in there assured that this is what God says is true and right and good. Not to say you can't use those words ever again, but we do want to make sure that what we believe to be good, right, and true is not based on ourselves, but it's based on God's wisdom. A helpful way to think about this is closed hand versus open hand. Closed hand issues, things that are absolutely necessary, spelled out, concrete, unavoidable truth, commands, principles that God has laid out for us. And then open hand would be those things that the Lord says that is based on the believer's conscience. It's based on the believer's conscience. I don't want anybody turning around to me during worship and saying, wow, I need to convict you of your poor singing voice. All right? That's an open hand issue. And honestly, just God has provided me with a really beautiful, poor singing voice. Right? But that's one of those things. Right? It might bug somebody. Sorry, Joellen, because I was singing very loud right in the back of your head this morning. Right? That was one of those things that might irk me. Right? But that is not God's standard. It's not God's standard. So we want to make sure that our standard, with which we're walking into one of these relationships, one of these tough moments of confrontation, is really something that God has laid out concretely, an unavoidable command, or if it's based on the Christian's conscience. Pride, again, leads to this relational, spiritual ruin because it blinds us to the truth of sin, but also to the truth of the gospel. But humility leads to restoration because it offers mercy. Again, we're not walking around saying to each other, your sin is worse than mine, and my way of handling your sin, that sounds nice, my way of handling your sin is better than your way of handling your sin. We walk around together saying we are both sinful. In a church, we are all sinful, and that means we all need the gospel. We all need the gospel. Kingdom citizens help each other fight sin. That's the big idea for this morning. Kingdom citizens help each other fight sin. And we help each other fight sin by giving up on that hypocrisy, that relational ruin. And we help each other fight sin through humility and mercy. Again, we think about this. We're walking around in church. We're relating to each other. And we're all confessing the same exact thing. We're sinful, sinful, you're sinful. And that means we all need the gospel. It was helpful to reflect on the gospel as God is judge. It's helpful to reflect on the gospel as God's justice meted out on Jesus for our benefit. But it's also, to help, it's also helpful to reflect on the gospel just in everyday conversation. It's helpful to think the truths. It's helpful to uh, preach the gospel to ourselves every single day as we interact with other people around us. 
If we are not doing that, if we're not, again, basing our belief and our efforts and our faithfulness on the gospel, then we really are going to give in to that pride and that relational ruin. We can take a moment here to praise God, to thank him that his gospel is true and it is effective and it's part of our regular diet of conversation and our regular diet of viewing ourselves and others. Humility leads to restoration because it offers mercy. Are we offering mercy to each other as sinners in need of help by sinners in need of help? Kingdom citizens help each other fight sin. Now, there's another uh, side of the story here, of course, because with every uh, confrontation, there's always another side of the story. You'll hear that often, right? So that is uh, what do believers do when someone comes up to them and says, I see that splinter. I see that sin problem. Well, it's actually the same, same deal, just the other side of the coin. Instead of offering humility and mercy, now the believer receives. It receives conviction, confrontation with humility and mercy. I think just a few things that are helpful here. If a brother or sister comes up to you and says, Hi, my name is fill in the blank, and I saw you, I heard you, I think you, whatever, fill in the blank. That's a tough moment. That is a tough moment. It's a needed moment. That's a tough moment. I think some of the ways that we can receive confrontation well from another believer is, again, to humble ourselves to the Lord and to think upon the mercy of the Lord. Practically speaking, pray for clarity. Pray for clarity with that brother and sister right then and there. Search the Bible. Search the Bible. See what God's standard is. See how the Lord has mapped out your relationship with him, your relationship with others. And then continue the conversation. I don't know if you've ever been able to solve a gigantic problem in just a few sentences. I have not. If you have just a short book that can help me do that, that'd be great. I'd love to read it. But it seems that when there's sin problems in our lives, that is not just a one conversation fix. That is a conversation after conversation after a conversation to years and years of mutual respect, but also help. Continue the conversation. We pray for clarity. We search the Bible for God's standard. But we also continue the conversation in a gospel direction. Again, not towards the goal of condemnation, but towards the goal of restoration. What does it look like to faithfully repent of that sin and move forward? And maybe as you search the Bible, you find out that this brother or sister's confrontation of you actually is true. You are doing that. You are saying that. You are looking at that. And you were, in a sense, caught red-handed. Well, then praise God. Praise God that there are people in your life that are not willing to just let you float down the river of self-destruction and sin, but are willing to rescue you, that are willing to step out of their comfort zone to not just talk about your sin, but to talk about the reality of God's faithfulness through the gospel for you. And that if you choose to give up on that sin and return to the Lord, then there is great restoration for you. Praise God. Praise God for your brother and sister. Praise God for his standard. Praise God for his mercy and repent of your sin. Just turn from it. Ask the Lord for strength to find your satisfaction, find your course of action in him and him alone. But it might also come up that this brother or sister has confronted you with sin, and it's untrue. It's not true. You have gone before the Lord, and it is a conscious issue, or they might just have a mistaken 
mistaken evidence or just view of what's actually going on. In that case, praise God as well. Praise God for somebody who is willing to step into your life. And even though they're wrong, they're still able and they're still willing to intercept you in faithfulness to the Lord. Now, again, that's a continuing conversation as well. But we can praise God because in his gospel kingdom, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. We might feel guilt from previous uh, confrontations. We might feel guilt from other people's prideful accusations of us, whether well-meant or they were meant for destruction. There might be that in your past, in your heart, and you might still be hanging on to the pain, right, the grudge, the consequences of an untrue confrontation before. We can praise God because the gospel tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is our judge, not man. And I think if we just look back at verse 2 here, say you will be judged by the same standard with which you will judge others and you'll be measured by the same measure you use. This is not a human court. This is God himself protecting those who have been condemned. This is the Lord saying, I stand up for, I intervene for those who are truly condemned in the truth of the gospel, but for those who suffer harsh, harsh, false accusations. I stand for them. Kingdom citizens help each other fight sin. Now, what should we do for those that are outside of God's kingdom? So far, we've been talking about believers interacting with other believers. But what should we do for those that are outside of God's kingdom? Look at verse 6. Now, every commentator that I read says verse 6 deserves to be by itself, but Ryan gave me extra work, so I'm just going to preach another sermon here on verse 6. It's always good for a laugh. But I think if we're, if we're looking at this verse, though it does stand alone, we do see how it fits into Jesus' reflection on relationships inside of the kingdom and outside of the kingdom. Verse 6 says this, Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Amen. So verse 6, what are, we, what are we looking at here? We're looking at two, two different principles here. The first is this. When he says, don't give what is holy, and again, you look down a little further, uh, or toss your pearls, these, these are uh, images, these are pictures of gospel truth. Right? We're looking at something that's holy, of course, sanctified. God is holy, so his gospel is holy. But then pearls is just something that's precious. And inside God's kingdom, what's more precious than the truth of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for us? So Jesus here is saying, don't toss the truths of the gospel before dogs and pigs. Right? Now, back in the day, way back in the day, like way, way back in the day, dogs and pigs were no good. No one really liked dogs. There's more of like coyote, like scavenging beasts, these coyotes. And pigs were probably like warthogs, like not like a nice little potbelly pig that you let run around the linoleum floor in the kitchen. But more along the lines of like, wow, that's a horned animal. And I don't like that, right? So here, Jesus is saying these unclean, both of these were, were deemed unclean in Jewish law. He's saying this, don't give gospel truths to those that are unclean. Unclean is a strong word, I know, but what Jesus is aiming at here is those who continually, with a hard heart, reject the truth of the gospel. If we are Christians and we have these precious, holy pearls of the gospel, 
we need to be careful with who we share them with. Now, we know, we know that the Great Commission sends us to everyone, everywhere with the same exact message, that Jesus died and rose again to rescue us from our sin. But the general principle that Jesus is getting at here is, yes, that is true, but we also need to be wise to move on from those who willingly, with a hard heart, reject the gospel. Two reasons why. First is they'll trample the gospel. They'll trample the gospel. Instead of receiving it, they'll throw it away. Instead of receiving it, they'll mar it. Instead of receiving it, they'll blacken it. They'll do what they can in order to destroy as much as they can of the gospel. Praise God, it cannot be destroyed. But nonetheless, they'll try their hardest. But then after a while, once they're done trampling the gospel, they'll turn. They'll turn to persecute those that are presenting the gospel to them. They'll turn to tear the believer to pieces. They'll turn to, once they figure out they can't really mar the gospel any further, they'll mar the gospel giver, which is you and me. So the general principle here to move on from those who are willingly, hard-heartedly rejecting the gospel is twofold. They'll reject the gospel, but they'll also turn to persecute the believer. And again, we are called to suffer We're called to suffer for the truth of the gospel as part of the Christian life. But in God's kingdom, right, time is of the essence. Time is of the essence, and God's truth is precious. So Jesus, and he picks this up in Matthew 10 as he sends out the disciples, and we get that famous verse, right, shake the dirt off of your feet. It's it's the same idea. Jesus here is saying, because time is of the essence, Because the gospel is so precious, believers prioritize relationships that bear faith fruit. And that's why we invest so much time, so much energy in believers. Because we expect that faithful fruit to be produced by faithful people, yes. But that's also why we spend so much time and effort investing in people who have not put their faith in Jesus. But Jesus here is giving us this wisdom, this general principle to say that there does come a time when our mercy and our humility, our slowness to judge those outside of God's kingdom must come to an end so we can invest that time, invest those precious gospel pearls in others who might have a soft heart. If you find yourself here today wondering if there is much more time effort or resources you need to give to an unbeliever, a relationship you have with an unbeliever, uh, I don't have any hard and fast rule other than I encourage you to pray about it. I encourage you to pray about it. I encourage you to pray about it. I can encourage you to talk to other faithful brothers and sisters in similar situations as you are and to seek the wisdom that the Lord has for us, to ask for his generosity in what we should do to live a faithful life. This is a hard truth. But again, God here, by his standard nonetheless, asks us to wisely consider our relationships, especially since we have this precious truth of the gospel. So back to double standards. Amen. Back to double standards. We don't like them. We hate them, right? And it's for good reason why we hate them. We should not live a life full of double standards. It doesn't take long to look around the world and to say, wow, it is rife with double standards. There are people practicing what they don't preach and preach what they refuse to practice all over the place. But that is not to be the characteristic of the church. 
Kingdom citizens help each other fight sin according to God's perfect standard. We look at others the way that God looks at others. We look at ourselves the way that God looks at us. We help other people fight sin according to God's gospel and his standard. So this means in the church, rather than pursuing pride, we seek humility. Humility first before the Lord, but then humility towards each other. And then we, instead of pursuing ruin, we seek out mercy. We provide mercy. And then finally, rather than condemnation, we seek out restoration. Restoration between believers and God. Restoration between believers and believers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for the truth, the grace, Father, the provision of the gospel for us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sustain us. And Father, you give us wisdom on how these things should work out in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you remind us, especially here at Sermon on the Mount. It's just so practical. Lord, we just thank you that you don't leave these things up in the air for us to try to figure out what it looks like and just this ambiguous command. Father, instead, you give us, Father, again, by your wisdom and your grace, you help us live a life that restores people to you and to each other. We pray, Lord, that we would be a church marked by this gospel grace. Pray, Father, that we would spend time praying for humility and mercy. And Lord, we would invest in each other so that, Father, we would be pursuing you better and better as individuals and as a church. I pray, Lord, for anyone here that is ministering to an unbeliever and is having a hard time. I ask and I pray that you would sustain them and give them wisdom. Father, I ask for that unbeliever to be rescued uh, by the truth of the gospel and by you giving them the regenerative gift of grace, faith. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.